Uh, my name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here. If this is your first time with us, thank you for being here. Uh, we are glad that you are here to worship with us uh, this morning. Um, as you probably gathered uh, with that scripture reading by uh, Jeff, uh, we are currently as a church uh, studying the book of Acts together, and we've titled that series, Go and Tell. And so if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open it up to Acts chapter 8. Uh, that is where we will be this morning. Um, if you need a Bible, we have copies back on our little welcome and information desk. Uh, we would love to give that to you free of charge as a gift uh, because we value the Word of God here. Um, if this is your first time or if you have not yet gotten one, we also have uh, little scripture journals that will have the book of Acts on them. If you want one of those and have not gotten one yet from us, just raise your hand. We've got some guys walking around that would love to give you one. Um, we've been giving those out every Sunday uh, since August. Um, and what you'll notice in those journals is just on the, the left side of the pages will be the scripture and on the right side will be places for you to take notes. And we would love for you to bring those back with you as you come back and worship with us. But that is our gift to you uh, because here's the deal. Here at Aletheia Church, we love the word of God. It's one of our values. We believe that God's word um, is uh, powerful. We believe that uh, he uses it to change lives. And so we want that to be in your hands. Um, if uh, entering into 2020, uh, you are looking for new ways to study the Bible or be reading the Bible and you need some help, uh, we've got some resources for you here as well. Um, uh, there's a number of people in our church that participate in a reading program called the Community Bible Reading Program, um, and it uses this little journal here. Uh, we'll have that those back on the table as well if you're interested in one of those and you want to be in a group, but the way this group works is you're in a group of about five or six people. You're reading the same thing every day and sharing that with one another. Um, if you stick with the program, you'll read through the entire New Testament in a year. You'll read through all the Psalms and you'll read through one third of the Old Testament. The great thing about this program is that if you miss a day, it's okay. Other people are reading and you're sharing with one another in community what God is teaching you to encourage one another. So if you are interested in that, we'll have signups for that in the back after service and we'll have the journals back there as well if you would love one of those. All right, so there's all my announcements. So here we go. So quick recap of the book of Acts and what we've seen up until this point, especially for those of you that haven't been with us so you know what I'm talking about when I, when I really start diving into Acts chapter 8. Um, now the book of Acts starts off with the disciples of Jesus uh, right before Jesus' ascension into heaven. So, so what I mean by that is Jesus has died. Uh, he spent three days in the ground and then he is risen from the dead and he is now with the disciples teaching them before he ascends into heaven and is at the right hand of the Father. And so as they are uh, preparing for Jesus to ascend into heaven with the Father, uh, we see that in this first chapter, the entire book of Acts rests on what Jesus tells his disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Let me read that to you. So these disciples have just got done asking Jesus, hey, when is the kingdom of God going to come to fruition? When are we going to see all this happen? And what's interesting to me as, as we frame what Jesus is about to say here in verse 8 is Jesus' disciples have just seen their leader be crucified, buried, and raised again, and yet they are still interested in how Israel's going to get rid of Rome. They're still, right? Some of you are like, I've talked to people in the past like, if I saw Jesus himself, then I would believe. Dude, the disciples were still struggling at this point, right? Don't give yourself too much credit. Like, you don't have that much faith. You aren't that great of a human being. Like, it's okay, right? So here you have the disciples, right? Taught by Jesus for three years, right? Walked with him, saw him crucified, buried, raised from the dead, still don't get it yet. Still confused about what their mission is and what God wants them to do. And so they ask him and Jesus' response is like, look, it's not for you to know any of this. You need to relax. But here's what you do need to know. And he shares verse eight with them. 
but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The entire book of Acts rests upon what Jesus says right there in verse 8. That Christians will faithfully from here on out because of the indwelling and power of the Holy Spirit witness to what Jesus Christ has done to the ends of the earth. That's it. And I said that we've entitled our series Go and Tell because our church is just a continuation of the faithfulness of men and women who love Jesus and witness to him from the very beginning. That here in 2020, you guys are here this morning, you are an example, a living, breathing example of God's faithfulness and his promise to his church all the way back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. That we are living, breathing, right, banners to the glory of God, declaring what Jesus has done. And guys, kingdoms have risen and fallen People have come, lived, and died. We've experienced plagues. We've experienced war. We've experienced shifts in education and prosperity as a human race. And the gospel has advanced. The church has grown and it moves forward because God promised in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that his church would be his witnesses in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so Jesus gives this promise to his disciples. He ascends into heaven, and then the work starts. But the first thing he tells them to do is he tells them to head back to Jerusalem, wait there until the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And so when you get to Acts chapter two, the Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples, miracles start happening, signs start happening, and people start trusting in Jesus as that long-awaited Messiah that God had promised to Israel all the way back to Adam and Eve. Right? And so you see people start responding, and then you see as we continue to read in the book of Acts that the church grows, that more and more people start trusting in Jesus, placing their faith in him, and being discipled by the disciples. And then we see that church leadership is set up, and that deacons start leading things, and that the church isn't just preaching the gospel, but they're also serving the poor and widows and, and the homeless and the orphans, that the church is doing the very things that Jesus asked his disciples to do to be his hands, to be his feet, to love the lowly, and to preach the good news of the kingdom of heaven. And then we saw in Acts chapter 7, all the way back in November before we started our Advent series, that Stephen, one of the the disciples, is uh, preaching the good news. He's standing before these religious leaders, and we see Stephen is the first martyr because as he testifies to the resurrection and lordship of Jesus Christ, he's stoned to death. And And that is where we are at once we get to Acts chapter 8. So we've seen a lot of stuff. The, the church has been expanding. It's been growing through the power of the Holy Spirit. And there's two things that I want you to kind of know about that we have seen consistently in every chapter, every verse of, of the book of Acts as we've been studying it together. The first one is this, that, that as Christians and as the church, we are united in one cause, and that cause was given to us by Jesus himself in Acts 1.8. So as we continue to study this book together as a church family, over and over again, we are going to see God's faithfulness, right? And understand that whether it's Aletheia Church or another church here in Gainesville or the church internationally, if we really are followers of Jesus, one thing unites us, and that's the praise and the glory and to witness to Jesus Christ himself. No matter where you stand denominationally, where you stand theologically, where you stand practically, right? The church is united under this cause, which is to make much of Jesus Christ. Now, as we do that, and as we see the church expand in the book of Acts, right, we've also seen this, right? God both gave us the command in verse 8 to be his witnesses, But we also see throughout this entire account and history of the church that God is the one who is faithful to help us fulfill the mission. 
that God both gives us the command to go and be the church and tell others the good news of what Jesus has done, but then he also faithfully provides the power and the opportunity and the source to change lives and share the good news. And over and over and over again, we see that God commands us to do this and then he also is faithful so that we might see gospel fruit take place. Churches started, people saved, lives changed. That God is faithful again and again and again and again. And so we started off this series way back in August, right? By asking you, if you were a member here or if you were a follower of Jesus, to think of one person that you were going to pray for and ask God to use you to share the gospel with them so that, that Jesus might save them. Right, we did that. And, and I, I remember that Sunday, it was super powerful here. Hundreds of names were laid at the foot of this cross. And if you look at that cross right now, God has been faithful. Right, there are people who have come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior, eternities forever altered because God has been faithful. And so the next two weeks, right, as we look at Acts chapter 8, we're going to be focusing on hard on what it means to witness to the glory of Jesus Christ to non-believing friends, family, co-workers, neighbors. Uh, it might be the one that you wrote down, right, all the way back in August. But we're going to see, one, God's faithfulness, and we're gonna also see how we can be intentional and trust God in the midst of that. So if you'll take a moment to bow your heads and pray with me, I'm gonna ask that God would use his word this morning to one, lead us to a greater worship of him, but also that we might respond and share and witness the good news of what he's done. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you uh, for just the privilege and honor that it is to gather with your children, men and women who know you and love you and confess you as Lord. And God, I ask that you would meet us in this time. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would convict us of sin that you would lead us to repentance and that in that repentance, Lord, we would have our faith and trust put in you or that idols would be torn down today and replaced with a deeper trust and a deeper commitment to you, Lord, and help us to see and experience your faithfulness in ways that we have not before. And I ask this all in Jesus' name, amen. So Acts chapter eight, right? we're finally there. So in these first three verses, and I'm not going to spend a, a ton of time on them, but in these, in these first three verses, here's just kind of what you see. You see um, that, that Saul approved the execution of, of Stephen, who was the, the guy we had seen back in Acts chapter 7. He was the first martyr. We see that uh, Saul, who will be later called Paul, as we'll see uh, later on in the book of Acts, Saul has uh, Stephen executed and then leads a great persecution of the church in Jerusalem and causes them to scatter, right? Causes them to leave Jerusalem and enter other parts of Judea and Samaria. Uh, and, and what I want you to see just in those first three verses uh, that Jeff read for us earlier is this. It's interesting that it does not take long for persecution to have to come upon the church to get the church to do the things that Jesus asked them to do in Acts 1.8, right? This is, this is something I want you to consistently see. Like as Christians, we tend to get comfortable, and when we get comfortable, we kind of stay in our groups, we kind of stay in our huddles, we kind of stay in our bubbles. And as we stay in those bubbles, right, people might be getting saved, but the mission that Jesus asked his church to participate in starts uh, slowly dying. The fervor and the desire for that starts slowly dying. And so everything we've seen in these first kind of seven chapters solely happens in Jerusalem that God is doing all this work in Jerusalem. But if you remember back in Acts 1.8, Jesus said, no, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, which is Southern Israel, in Samaria, 
and to the ends of the earth. And so what's fascinating to me, and I think this is something that if you are a follower of Jesus here this morning, something that you, we need to just understand and, and, and put out there, right? Because I think evangelical Christianity has kind of had this tendency over the last 20 years to present a gospel to you that says, if your life stinks, come to Jesus and he'll make everything better. And here's what I would say to you. That is true. And he will also rip everything away from you that is comfortable, that is easy. And he is not the God that's interested in giving you your best life now where you'll have all the money you want, a new car, the house you want. That's not the gospel. And very, very early on, the church is in this mode of comfort. And what does God use to get them out of that and snap them back into reality? persecution, suffering, right? As Saul ravages the church and starts arresting Christians, the only thing they can do is run. And when they run, guess what they're forced to do? Share the good news. So God uses persecution of the church to advance the gospel as we're going to see, right? That God consistently uses the suffering of his people and the persecution of his people to see the gospel go forward. And as we see that, I love verses four through eight, because this is this beautiful explanation of what God does immediately once that persecution sets in and the church starts responding to it. It says, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. See, what we have seen throughout the book of Acts is that the Holy Spirit empowers followers of Jesus to witness to what Jesus Christ has done, to serve without wanting to be repaid in his church, to love without needing love in return to withstand persecution. And he empowers the church as they are scattered to preach the word. And here's what I love about this. A lot of these people who are out preaching and moving into these new areas, guys, they didn't go through some 12-step discipleship program to have everything laid out for them. They didn't go to seminary. They weren't classically trained in Greek and Hebrew. They were people that had experienced the life-changing power of the gospel and with the power of the Holy Spirit inside of them went and just started telling people about Jesus. And guys, when I say they went to Samaria, that's, that's not like us heading over into Jacksonville. No, think of, think, it's, I guess maybe for Gainesville, it'd be like heading over to Tallahassee, right? The enemy, Right? Because if you know anything about Israeli and Jewish history, Samaritans and Jews, they didn't like each other very much. Right? Jews kind of had this pure notion right, that they were the only followers of God who got it right. And Samaritans likewise felt the same way. Not a, not a compatible worldview. Right? And they would argue amongst each other. And yet here you had Jesus all the way back in, in verse eight of chapter one saying, yeah, the gospel is gonna go to those people, so just be ready. It's gonna go to those Samaritans that you don't like. And so here we see this beautiful moment where Philip, who's just this godly dude, I love later on in the, in the book of Acts, you read about his family, he just, he just has a bunch of daughters and this is all it says about him. They were prophets. Right? He, just had a, he just raised a godly family. Right? People that loved Jesus and made much of him. And Philip heads down to Samaria, proclaims Christ, and look at what the Holy Spirit does as Philip obeys the command that God has given them. It says the crowds pay attention. Unclean spirits are sent out of people who are dealing with them, that the paralyzed and lame are healed, and great joy comes upon the city. Now, some of you guys in this room, the idea of like public speaking and, and talking to people in public and preaching the gospel scares the living daylights out of, you, out of you. And then there's people like me who 
talk all the time and never knew a stranger. And that, and that, doesn't, that doesn't give me any fear whatsoever. But no matter where you sit on, on that spectrum, right? when I read what's going on here, I'm like, dude, hold on. Spirits sent out of people, paralyzed and lame, healed, and great joy brought to the city. I don't care how good of a public speaker you are. I don't know how, how great you are at preaching or talking. That is a power that doesn't come with just a natural ability to speak in public. And an entire city is confronted with this message that Philip has brought to it in a way that they never have before. And, and, and guys, you have to understand, not just is this a big deal for Philip to head into Samaria and start preaching, but it's a big deal for the Samaritans to listen to him because they did not agree with one another. Guys, Samaritans and Jews couldn't even agree on which city the temple should be in. They would argue over the most simple of things. Which books should we read as scripture or not? Where should we worship God? Who is the Messiah gonna be? And then Philip shows up, says, well, the Messiah already came. His name was Jesus. He was born in a little town called Bethlehem. He lived for about 30 years. And then our own people turned him over to the Romans to be crucified and killed and then rose again on the third day. And he's now ruling and reigning at the right hand of God, the father, and he's establishing his kingdom now through his church. And they're like, well, hold on, what, what, what mountain were we supposed to be worshiping on again? Right, that, that is what they would have been asking. That is what they, they would have been wanting to know. And yet Philip is sharing the good news in the midst of major objections from this culture and barriers are being removed to belief because of the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, now I want you to pause and think about this for a second. If, if you are here this morning and you're not a Christian, you're, you're here, one, you're not here by accident. God has a reason for you to be here. You're probably here because a friend invited you or maybe you used to go to church and you're like, hey, maybe that's something good I should be doing again, but you're, you don't really know if you're a follower of Jesus. One, thank you for being here, but let me just say this here. You are not here by accident. There is no such thing as an accident in God's economy. But let me also just say this. Maybe you're sitting there like, I can't see myself trusting in God. Maybe it seems too far-fetched to you. Maybe the idea of having to change your life around what God asks of you seems too much or it seems impossible to believe. If you're a Christian here this morning, start thinking about your one or someone that you know who doesn't know Jesus or has not trusted Jesus. Maybe you think about them and you're like, Man, they don't even seem remotely sensitive towards God. They wouldn't want to even have a conversation about God. They're so far from God with the way that they live their lives, it's hopeless. They can never return to him. The remainder of this story in Acts chapter eight is going to completely turn that idea on its head. Because you're going to see God is going to save probably the person who was least likely to be saved in this entire city. Look at, look at verse nine with me. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time, he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, like I said a minute ago, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you start thinking like, man, this Christianity thing seems really, really far-fetched. Just bear with me for a minute because I doubt you could be as far off as Simon would have been. If you're here this morning and you're thinking about someone that you would like, like just give everything up for to have God save them, but they seem so far off that you wouldn't even know where to have, start to have a conversation with them, they're no different than Simon. 
Guys, when, 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 when they're saying here that Simon was this famous magician in Samaria, let me give you like just a, a little bit of a backdrop on like who he would have been, what his life would have been like, and what, it, what the people of that city would have thought of him while he was there, right? We know that he was a magician and he practiced in the city and was well known, and people saw him as somebody great and he had their influence and attention. All right, sound familiar? right? We live in celebrity culture, right? Simon was the celebrity, right? In the midst of this culture, he's a celebrity, right? Now, magic in that day and age was something that came out of the Medo-Persian empire. Uh, if, you, if you know anything about history, that would have been like the areas of Medea and Lydia and Babylon. So we're talking about like the, 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 the place where King Cyrus was. If you read back in the, the book of Isaiah, this is where this, kind of, this, this practice kind of came from. And so Simon would have practiced this sort of magic that came out of that culture. And it was a mix of like science and what they knew about science at the time. It would have been a mix of astrology, uh, divination, and divination would be where you would conjure up you know, uh, spirits to come help you predict the future and tell you what was gonna happen moving forward. And, and so like, you know, just basic, basic kind of like occultic practices is what they would do. And it seems, right, that apparently Simon was able to do something because the power that he put on display and the things that he did in Samaria grabbed people's attention and must have had some sort of power source behind it. Either he was able to predict things that would happen in the future or he was able to heal people using whatever means or methods he was using, but there was some power source attached to what he was doing. So here you have Simon deeply committed to this way of life, believing in magic, who's not only committed to this way of life, right? So his worldview, but he is a celebrity, meaning he's well-known, but what is he well-known for? The magic. So there's a, another, right, foundational piece where he would be committed to what he believes in in his worldview, Thirdly, right, oftentimes if you were a magician, your entire livelihood was attached to this practice. Meaning if he stopped practicing magic and stopped doing things like divination and healing and conjuring spirits or whatever else he was doing, he would be homeless because he would no longer have a means of making money. Now, I don't know about you, but if you told me, hey, someone has a worldview that they are deeply committed to, that is in opposition to God, that has caused them to be a celebrity and gather fame and attention and approval from an entire group of people. And on top of that, their entire economic well-being and future is held up in that same worldview as well. I would say this, they're probably not a great candidate to immediately believe a gospel presentation. You're probably not gonna walk up to them one time and just say, hey, do you remember Jesus? Yeah, tell me about him. It's probably not going to be, right, what we would expect to be their reality. Simon was well known within the Samaritan community as a powerful man, right? They even said there that the statements about him was, this man is the power of God that is called great. And so you have Philip in the midst of persecution entering in Samaria, and as the gospel spread in Jerusalem, it begins to spread in Samaria as well as we see people getting saved. But one thing I want you to notice and understand, if, if we're gonna be on mission together as a church, right? if we're gonna go and tell, if we're gonna share the good news, even to people like Simon, right, who don't seem like they're candidates to be followers of God, we need to be ready that as the good news spreads and as Jesus' witness increases in the world around us, we can expect to run into counterfeits. There are counterfeit gospels everywhere. Whether, if, whether it's first century Samaria and they're talking about magic or something completely different in 2020. I mean, let, I mean, let me give you just, guys, like, and, and it's not just counterfeit gospels, guys. We're talking about what was going on in Simon's life was counterfeit power. It had power. It just wasn't from God. But this isn't uncommon. I mean, we, we experience this type of thing all the time, 
counterfeit power, counterfeit good news, right? I mean, I remember when I was a kid, right, back in the, back in the 90s, right, there would be these commercials, and they would say, hey, if you want to lose weight, we've got a pill, and if you take this pill, you will lose weight. It's called Metabolife. Anybody know, remember, remember that? Anyone in here old enough to know that? Like eight of you. The rest of you, you're, go home, call your parents. They will tell you about this pill. It was huge. Take Metabolife. Guess what that pill did? It worked. You lost weight. And then people started dying. Counterfeit power. Right? They found that the pill was linked with some sort of like a, a drug called ephedra, and it was literally killing people as they took it. The guy and the people that sold it found out, I did some deep dive, I actually went back and looked at it this week. He had been in jail previously, was released, then created this company, and now he's back in jail again for what he did. Counterfeit power. Hey, take this pill. You won't have to diet or exercise or watch what you eat or anything. Just take the pill. It just melts off. And it worked. And it also killed them. Because it was counterfeit power. We experience, guys, every day, if you turn on your TV or turn on your computer and go to a news source or whatever it is you're doing, whatever else you're experiencing, counterfeit good news. This is not to be political, but every, every year, every four years, you and I are promised good news from some political candidate. Follow them, believe in them, put your trust in them, and they're going to make everything better. College is going to be free. No one's going to have to pay taxes. We're all going to be safe. Everything's going to be fixed. Notice how I'm picking things from both political parties, just so no one can accuse me of where I sit. They're all lying. It's counterfeit good news. Because guess what? Wouldn't they have done it already if they could? Amen. Wouldn't it have been fixed already if we could solve the problem? Maybe we're the problem. Maybe we contribute to that. Maybe they contribute to that. Maybe it's counterfeit good news. And we see it all the time because life doesn't work that way. We've been trying it for years. We've been looking at different variations of it and it never comes to fruition because this is the thing about counterfeits. Guess what? They're eventually found out to be fake. Counterfeit power. Oh, that pill kills people. Yep, it's counterfeit. Counterfeit good news. That candidate will fix everything. Eight years later, he's the worst, get him out. Or her, sorry. Right? It seems good on the front end and then on the back end we realize that it's counterfeit because counterfeits are eventually found out to be fake. And the question we can ask ourselves is, well, wait a minute, how do, how, do, how do I as a Christian then with the world around me as I want to witness to the glory of Jesus Christ, how do I, how do I recognize these counterfeits and how do, I, how do I combat this? If you are a follower of Jesus here this morning, let me give you just a... I think something that will profoundly change the way you approach apologetics, witnessing, and understanding the world around you. The greatest way to identify a counterfeit gospel and counterfeit good news is to know the real one so well that everything else is obviously fake when it's up against you. Amen. When I was in banking, right, I started out on the front line as, as a teller. And one of the things that became abundantly clear very early on is sometimes people would try to bring fake money even to a bank. Like, oh, that's a bold move. Eh, they're criminals. They just kind of do whatever they want. And early on, I remember being so scared all the time of, oh man, like what if somebody brings a really, really good counterfeit bill in and I can't tell the difference? If you talk to anyone who has worked with money for a couple months and touches it daily and experiences it and sees it, they're not worried about a counterfeit bill anymore. I remember one time as a, as a teller, 
taking money. There was like $1,500 in various money in there, and there was one counterfeit $10 bill. And I'm like rolling through it, counting it. I'm like, oh, this is a fake. And just set it aside and kept going. And I had to tell the person, hey, you got a fake bill in there, so I gave you a fake bill. How was I able to do that? Not because they had trained me on what counterfeits are supposed to look like and everything else. No, I knew the real thing so well that a counterfeit stuck, stuck out like a sore thumb. And if you know Jesus well, if you know the depth of his love for you and the power that resides in the Holy Spirit and you faithfully walk with him and you see that obedience to him leads to joy and you see his faithfulness in your life over and over and over again, guess what counterfeits start looking like? Fakes. And they lose their allure. They lose the power to try to move you towards them. And this is exactly what happens in Samaria. For years, they sat there with a counterfeit gospel being peddled to them by Simon the magician. And then Philip shows up and brings the real thing. And guess what? Boom. Everything's changed. The city is turned upside down. And as Philip preaches the gospel, people are rescued and restored. Let me read verse 12 through 13 to, to you again. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Guys, when the true gospel is presented and lived out by God's people, this is what happens. Worldviews are changed. Cultures are turned upside down. Cities are changed. Worldviews are changed. Because when Simon is faced with the power and the beauty and the truth of the gospel, even his own worldview crumbles in the face of it. Now, let me just say this, right? I get, some of, you, some of you guys are theologians in here and you've studied the Bible more than me and you know the, the languages in and out and you're, you're gonna get ready and you're gonna say, why is Kevin talking about Simon? I don't think he was really saved. Right? Because this next part of the story leads us to believe that Simon might not have been really saved. Let me just, let me just say this. I know there's controversy around it. One, I think he is. But two, let's look deeper at what God is doing here at, holistically. Right? He completely changes a culture because of the power of the Holy Spirit and the church living out the implications of Acts 1-8. Right? But if you look at this next part of the story, right, the apostles show up in verse 14 because they see all these people in Samaria are starting to be saved and the apostles are like, well, we need to go down there and see what's going on. Right? So they leave Jerusalem and they head down there and then they see that these people are confessing and have faith in Christ and it says that they lay hands on them and that the power of the Holy Spirit is given to them. Now, let me pause really quickly. I'm gonna give you two minutes on this. Right? This is not a teaching and a, the, uh, and a verse where you should develop your entire theology of the Holy Spirit, right? Acts is not, Luke is not trying to teach us that if you want the gift of the Holy Spirit, you need to have some special leader in your life walk up to you and lay hands on you. That is not what this is saying, right? What is being told here is that in the early days of the church, as the gospel went forward, especially into places that were not culturally Jewish in the sense that Jesus was and did not have a lot of the same basic beliefs that they had, that the apostles would come and confirm that the gospel had been fully taught and preached there. And then as they laid hands on them and prayed with them, the Holy Spirit came and affirmed what they did. It was to affirm the power of the gospel, not to teach us something about the Holy Holy Spirit, right? If you are a follower of Jesus here this morning and you have accepted what Jesus Christ has done in your life, you have the Holy Spirit residing in you and you don't need someone special to lay hands on you and give it to you. So as the apostles show up, they lay hands on them, right? And as they lay hands on them, the Holy Spirit shows up. And then, right, here's where, here's where Simon goes a little crazy, Right? Right? Simon, new follower of Jesus, has been baptized, is trusting in God, he's been walking around with Philip, and then he screws up. 
right? And a lot of people interpret that Simon wasn't truly a believer here. And, and I think they have some support. I mean, if you look at it, right, he asks them after he sees the Holy Spirit given out, he's like, hey, will you give me that power so I can peddle that for money? Bold move, buddy. Right? There's clearly some hangover from what you used to do, right? Influencing now, right, your time with God's family and his church. Right? And so he says to them, hey, 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 Peter, give me that power and we can make some money off this. And Peter's response is very Peter-esque, right? For any of you guys that know Peter, right? Peter comes in and basically says, Be, all right, forgive me. To hell with you and your money. It's basically what he says to him, right? I don't need your money. I don't want your money. I'm not after your money. That's not what this is all about. And then he says this, you have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God whoa, <laughs> right? Remember, this is the same guy that Jesus called Satan, right? Now yelling at Simon, right? You just imagine Simon, um, okay, <laughs> right? Right, so here's Simon sitting there. But I actually think that Simon is truly a believer here. And this should Teach us something as the church that if we're going to do the work that God asks us to do, to be the church, to witness, right, to go to tough places and to witness to people, even people like Simon, that it's probably not going to be this beautiful picture of being a perfect Christian the moment someone believes and is baptized, right? Because if you look, right, it says right there, Luke says, he believed and was baptized. And in the midst of that, Peter calls him to repent. And what does he do? He shows remorse. It's like, I'm so sorry. Will you please pray for me? I, I, he's so distraught. Right? Some people are like, oh, he asked them to pray for him because uh, he, he knew he didn't know God and couldn't pray. Have any of you guys ever been so distraught over your sin that you literally could not have, you didn't have words for it. You needed someone else to pray for you. It's just as likely impossible that that's what's going on with Simon here. And when you're someone who lived a life as crazy as Simon lived, you might not get everything right the first time. You might have to be taught what it means to walk faithfully with God, and that's okay. That's why we preach a gospel of grace, not one of obedience. And as Simon asks he says, hey, let, me just, let me share exactly what he says. Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. That doesn't sound like somebody who doesn't believe in the power of God and doesn't believe they're wrong. He's seen and experienced the power of God and wants to repent. And now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. They leave Samaria and more churches get started. Acts 1.8 is fulfilled. See, here's what this shows us. God can save people out of crazy circumstances. It's actually something God loves to do. And if we're going to do the work of being the church, of living out Acts 1.8, we need to be prepared to witness to some people in some crazy circumstances. I, I remember when I was in college, Hurricane Katrina had, had come through and we could just go down there consistently and do work. And if any of you guys have ever been in New Orleans, which is one of my favorite cities on this earth, if you go on Jackson Square, there's just always these like people out there who are fortune tellers. And it would always be so interesting because for those of you guys that know me, you can probably imagine that like they don't intimidate me. Right? Very I mean, I'm five six, a buck forty-five. Like a lot of things should intimidate me, but I've got small man syndrome, and so I just go for it. Right? <laughs> And 
And so like, I'm here with these guys and like, you know, we're on this service trip and we're hanging out on Jackson Square and some people are going over to Cafe Du Monde to get beignets and like some people are going around. And I'm like, let's go talk to one of these fortune tellers. And like the fear in this, this kid's eyes who was a freshman at our university as I said that. And I'm like, no, oh, come on, we'll go talk to her. So we're sitting there and we're talking to this girl. And she's like, you want me to read your fortune? I'm like, I, I don't trust you. She's like, people say that all the time. Like, because it's true, right? <laughs> if you could really see the future, you wouldn't be sitting in Jackson Square with a card table that you put up in this fake aquarium bowl that has some smoke in it, right? <laughs> and so I'm like, yeah, I, I don't, I, I can't, I actually came over here because God told me to talk to you. And she's like, right, like what? Like, you're interested in making up weird claims too, right? She's like thinking this, right? <laughs> Right? And so, and so I sit down with her, and I was like, so what's it like knowing your entire life is a lie? Wouldn't recommend doing that to start out. Right? And the kid next to me is like, stop! What are you doing, man? It's like, you're going to get us killed right here on Jackson Square, and Christmas is next week. What are you doing? And she looks at me and goes, I make a lot of money doing it, so why not? And I said, one day that's going to catch up with you, though, don't you think? It's like, wouldn't, like wouldn't, wouldn't you think that's going to catch up with you one day? And she, you know, she's got this smile on her face. Why? I was like, well, eventually you're going to lie to enough people where you're going to be found out as a counterfeit. She hadn't thought that far ahead, and we shared the gospel with her, and guess what she did? She prayed to accept Christ with us right there on Jackson Square. Picked up her card table, walked off. It. Right? Because when, when you face this kind of thing, right? Like, guys, like, here's the deal. You're, you see me talk right here. I, there's nothing special about me. My grammar is terrible. Right? Jackie, every week, comes up to me after I speak. Here's the grammar mistakes you made today in your sermon. <laughs> I say, honey, I love you. I don't care. Just gonna do it. She's dying laughing right now because it's so true, right? You know, like as a preacher, it's like, I want some feedback. Like, baby, how did my sermon go? Well, your grammar stinks. <laughs> that's, that's not what I mean. I, I, I want to like, you know, the theology, was it presented clearly? Well, you said you and I, and it's supposed to be you and me. Who cares? We're talking about the gospel and you care about my use of you and I? but there's nothing special about me. But the power of the Holy Spirit that resides inside of me, that resides inside of you, God uses that to alter the eternities of his children. Even if there's some crazy fortune teller on Jackson Square in New Orleans in 2013. Actually, that was not 2013, that was 2008, wasn't it? Man, I'm old. <laughs> God is responsible for salvation and he wants to use his people to rescue and redeem those who are far from him. When someone responds to the gospel, they don't have to have it all together. Right? That young lady may have been out on Jackson Square the very vexed night doing fortunes. I do, not, I do not know. That was our last night in New Orleans but we can give them time to respond to the teachings of Jesus and call them to, respent, to repentance when they fall out of line with what God has taught us. Because what we see consistently throughout the book of Acts is the Holy Spirit does two things. The Holy Spirit is responsible for saving people and the Holy Spirit is responsible for sanctification and you and I are along for the ride. And we witness to the glory of God, his son, Jesus Christ, and the power of the Holy Spirit to change lives. And so here's what I want us to take away from this, guys, because 
All right, this week and next week, I said earlier, it's going to kind of be a two-part sermon on understanding evangelism and understanding the power source behind evangelism. And this week was understanding the power source behind that evangelism, that the Holy Spirit resides in you if you are a believer, and you can even see God faithfully save people as crazy as Simon the Magician if you'll just step out in faith and share the good news. The same way somebody did with me the same way somebody did with you because every act of salvation is a miracle and it doesn't have to look as crazy as Simon. So here's what I want you to take, take away this morning. If, you're, if you are a Christian here this morning, just do this for me. If you were here with us all the way back in August, I want you to think to your one. Think about how, how far or how near they may seem to God right now and just ask yourself, are you praying for them? And are you believing that God can save them no matter where they are at? If you're not doing those two things, will you do this for me this morning? Before you come up and take communion, will you repent? Will you repent of your unbelief? And let me, guys, let me tell you something. You are, if you're here this morning, like, Kevin's calling me out right now, ouch. I need to repent of that same sin. That same unbelief persists in my heart at times. And here's what scripture promises us. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from sin and death. Right, That we are free and forgiven and loved and redeemed in Christ. that his grace is sufficient for me. And that's why, as a Christian, and having been a Christian for almost 12 years now, I can stand here, confess my faults freely in front of you, and confess them before God and know I'm forgiven. And then respond in obedience. Contact them this week. Find, Find an opportunity to share the good news of Christ with them. You have no idea what God's doing in their life right now, maybe. If you are not a Christian here this morning, let me extend this invitation to you. I think God is calling you to him this morning. This this very morning that you are here at Aletheia Church in early January of 2020 because God wants you to know that he loved you so much that he sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to die for your sin and rebellion towards the creator of the universe and in your place. And that when Jesus died on the cross, he paid the penalty for every sin you would commit, past, present, and future, and then he rose again on the third day to offer you new life in Christ. that you would be forgiven and adopted as a son or daughter of God. That's the language that the Bible uses to describe those that have known and trusted in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, that you are adopted. You are a part of the family. That's why the church isn't just some organization that kind of hangs out and sings some songs. They're a crazy, kind of messed up family that's trying to figure out what it means to love Jesus faithfully together, even though we don't always get along. And that even though we don't always get along, we all agree on this, Jesus is awesome and we want to make much of him. He's the best. He's the hero. You are here this morning because God wants you to know that. He wants you to know that you are loved more deeply than you could ever imagine. And it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how far you are from God right now. It doesn't matter what direction you're heading. That to this morning could be the moment where you lay that down and trust in Jesus Christ instead. Will you respond like Simon? You don't have to have it all together. You don't have to know everything. But will you respond like Simon and trust in him? I know that sounds easy coming from a pastor. As a guy standing up here, if you had known me 15 years ago, you would have said that guy will never be a pastor. I was at one of my friend's weddings back in October, saw a friend that I had not seen since my freshman year of college. He lives out in California now. He makes a ton of money, works for a contractor. He's like, man, what are you doing now? I was like, I live in Florida. He's like, how cool, what are you doing there? He's like, I'm a pastor of a church. And he literally dropped his drink. (laughs) 
And I was like, dude, I'm just as shocked as you are. And he goes, <laughs> he goes, you, Kevin Anderson, are a pastor of a church. Yep. It's like, they'll let anybody pastor, man. <laughs> and I told him about Jesus. And now Jesus had radically changed my life. It doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter where you're going. This morning can be the morning where you give your life to Christ and start walking with God faithfully. So we're going to do this. Every week here at Aletheia Church, we take communion. It's something we do. Right? I've been told to give you some instructions that we ask people to go down these sides, take communion, and then go back down the center, back to your seat. There you go, Daniel. All right, we're good. Right? It's kind of the flow of operations in this room. Right? But here's what communion is. Right? Communion is not just an opportunity to come up and eat a little bit of bread and grape juice, or we have a gluten-free option as well. Right? What communion represents is the broken body and blood of Jesus Christ poured out for you and for me. And so for, for you, if you were a follower of Jesus here this morning, Taking communion is not an act of penance. It's not something that needs to be done solemnly. It's an act of worship. It's coming up and saying, God, thank you that your flesh and blood was poured out so that I might be forgiven and reconciled to God. It's crazy. If I didn't believe that Jesus had really died and rose again, it'd be the weirdest thing that people could possibly do. And yet I believe it to be true because Jesus really did live. He really did die and he really did rise again from the dead. And so I take communion every week here Right, remembering what Jesus Christ has done for me. If you're not a Christian, the Bible asks that you not take communion because you don't believe the same thing as us. But here's the deal. You can place your faith and trust in Christ and the invitation to the table is always open for you. As we respond during communion this morning, will you do what I talked about earlier? If you are a Christian here this morning, will you think about your one someone that you want Jesus to save this year, and if you need to repent of unbelief towards God saving them, would you do that? And then will you come up and take communion knowing that you're forgiven for that unbelief and return to your seat and worship Jesus because he's worthy? And if you're not a Christian here this morning and you just want to talk to somebody, we're going to have some people in the back with the lights turned down. You can go back to them, talk to them. They can pray for you. They can tell you what it's like to follow Jesus, and, and you can begin a journey with him today. But let's, together, as a church, as the people of God, say that we are gonna walk through this together. We're gonna ask God to do miraculous things. We're gonna ask God that a greater trust in our hearts will form this year and by his strength and the power of the Holy Spirit that we will witness to his glory more this year, more people will come to know Jesus, more churches will get planted and more people's eternities will forever be changed because of the life-changing power of the gospel. Will you bow your heads and ask God to do that with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace on our lives and for the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you that we can trust you and that we have over 2,000 years of seeing your faithfulness to the church. That we can see the church continue to expand and grow and more people's lives changed by the good news of what Jesus Christ has done. Father, give your church wisdom to identify the counterfeit gospels and powers that we'll see out there and to place our trust in you and what your son has done. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters in here this morning who have been wrestling with the sin of unbelief, specifically in regarding to witnessing 
to their unbelieving friends and neighbors. Lord, might you forget them? Might they experience that forgiveness, know that they are forgiven? And then, Father, give them the strength and the power to share the good news of what you have done. And Holy Spirit, if there is anyone in here this morning that does not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, will you save them right now? Convict them of their sin. Grant them repentance and reveal to them that Jesus is who he said he was, that he really lived, that he really died, and he really rose again because he is their God and their King. God, I love you so much. I love this church and the men and the women that serve you so faithfully in it. May we experience your grace this year be a continuation of what you have been doing all the way since Acts 1-8, that Aletheia Church in Gainesville, Florida will be your witnesses in Gainesville, in Florida, in the U.S., and to the ends of the earth. Make that true of us, and I ask this all in Jesus' name.